All right. Hi, everyone. This is obviously not Stefan Molyneux from Freedom Main Radio. This is Michael DeMarco from Freedom Main Radio. And uh, Steph is currently traveling back from New York City, where he spoke last night at the Anarchy in NYC event. Um, apparently, he's a pretty big success. There are a couple hundred people there. Um, I think Daniel was actually in attendance as well. Um, and yeah, today we have a guest host. It's Daniel Mackler, who most people involved in the Freedom Main Radio community should be very well aware of. Uh, he's currently a filmmaker, a writer, and a musician, currently based in New York City. He previously worked for 10 years as a psychotherapist in New York, and his work focuses on the causes, consequences, and radical significance of childhood trauma. And Daniel, thank you so much for being here today to guest host the Freedom Main Radio Sunday Show. Good to be here. Uh, it's been pretty interesting. I was like, how is this going to go? I've never hosted a radio show. And then I realized... Literally five minutes ago, as I was thinking about it, that I actually have done this before. In New York City, I was a DJ on an anarchist um, pirate radio station in the really? East, yeah, in the East Village, and I totally forgot about it. I haven't done it since the late '90s. I hosted a children's radio show on Saturday mornings on a radio show called Steal This Radio, eighty-eight point seven FM, and uh, it was closed down by the um, I don't even what, what was it called the. Um, Oh, God, the the federal broadcasting agency that... The, oh, FCC. The FCC, they shut us down, yeah, because we were low wattage, we didn't have a license, and it was... <laughs> so it ended up, the last couple of shows were being broadcast from a van around the East Village, so... <laughs> so I was thinking, how ironic, it's, it's good to be back, and I was thinking, <laughs> there was, at the end, there was risk that we could get arrested for it, and I was Apple Pius, that was my DJ name on that show, and... So it's good to be back in spirit, and it's it's wonderful to be here, and I'm really, I'm really glad, and I'm privileged. I feel really privileged to be able to be a guest host on the Sunday Colin Show, and I got to meet Stefan for the first time yesterday, and that was, uh, it was it was interesting. I, I talked to him, and I was like, what would it be like meeting him in person? Because I've heard I've heard a lot of his shows, and I've been a guest on his shows before, and I've talked to him on the telephone before, and. It was in, he asked me that. I said, I said, this is different. This isn't exactly what I expected. He said, well, what's different? What's it like? Because he said, I think I am kind of how I, how I present on, you know, on FDR is how I am in person. And I, I thought about it. And I was like, what is it? And, and I had one word for it. I said, you know what it is? You're more huggable in person. <laughs> so it was like, oh, really? I was like, yeah, that's what it was. It was like, he's the kind of guy you could want to give a hug to. And I, I never really quite felt that on, on the show. So I was like, interesting. It's interesting the vibe people give off in person. So anyways, here we are, really glad to be here, willing to talk about anything and ready to get going. So I guess ready to take uh, calls. All right, great. Andrew, uh, you're our first caller today. Hi, Daniel. Uh, it's great to be talking to you. Um, nice I to talk to you, too. Two questions. Um, first one's a pretty quick question. I saw on your Facebook that you posted that you're getting ready to do podcasts. So I was wondering if you could tell us a little about that. Oh, that's a good question. And and it's it definitely dovetails with what's going on here, guest hosting this show, because I, I really actually have been inspired by Stefan, how many podcasts he does, that he does them, that people actually listen to them, and that it helps change people's lives. And and I thought that's a medium that I would like to explore. The question is, I don't know exactly what I want to do. Part of my idea is I would like to interview people. And I've spent you know, a lot of my adult life professionally interviewing people as a therapist. But that's for a different purpose. That's to help people grow. 
for their and for their own sake specifically. And also as a filmmaker, I've interviewed people, but that's basically to get them to reveal themselves so that I can use it in, in documentaries. And in both cases, I was a very, very gentle interviewer. And so the whole purpose was to nurture a relationship, to have people bring things out in a very safe environment where they could express themselves with no fear. And, and in a way, so I was like very much like a nurturing parent in both cases. I was thinking something different about the podcast I would like to do as an interviewer. I, I, there's just part of me that's like, I feel our world is in such crisis and I feel so many people are so dishonest and especially people in power that I just have this vision of getting people on who are really in power, who are really confident about their ideas, who are real thought leaders in the world and just grilling them and giving them the best of my energy to really question them and to see if I can expose the flaws in their logic to the best of my ability to do it. And to the, with the purpose of really getting at the truth. And, and I just feel like all these years I've had of interviewing people has given me a skill at really being able to get right at the heart of what's, what's going on, what people's rationalizations and denials are and their defenses. And I have a good ability to piece together logics. I, I think that it's, um, I think I'd just be good at it somehow. And it, it, would, it would also just satisfy me. On the flip side, it's like, it's really not my personality to grill people. I don't really like to do it. And so that's the, the basic thing holding me back. Some people seem to really get a kick out of just grilling people. And for me, it's like, I don't like that, but I just somehow feel called to do it. And so I don't know that I'm actually ready to do it, but I, there's just some part of me that deeply wants to do it just for the sake of getting out proper information and, and in, in a public way, exposing truth more. So that, that's my main idea. I don't know that I, I feel like I've pretty much expressed what I believe in, in my essays pretty well. So I don't necessarily feel the need to, to express my own point of view. And so I think that that's my idea for doing podcasts is to do an interview based podcast series. Cool. That's, okay. that's sort of, well, yeah, um, yeah. And I don't know, I don't know if that, that expresses it that well, but that's sort of my idea. Yeah. Um, it actually, it does remind me of, I can't remember the guy's name, but there's a guy who would go in, he would like have interviews set up and sit with like a politician or something. Mm. And he would do kind of what you're talking about. And oh man, some of those guys would just get like angry and storm out. And he really like made them uncomfortable. Yeah. Yeah. And the thing is, it's like, I don't like doing that, but it's a funny thing because in a strange way, I actually do have very powerful experience of interviewing people who are lying. And, and I've really only reserved that ability of mine to just grill the shit out of people for people who have really harmed me. And that's basically, um, my parents and other, you know, relatives who are parental figures, my grandparents, um, I'm trying to think my step parents that, I've given it to them. I've really blasted the hell out of them. And it, it was it was a fascinating experience because I realized I can do this. And it's like I'm way better at it than they are. Because to me, the truth is much stronger than the lies. And it's it's very interesting when the truth comes up against the lies, what really happens if you got two people who are really both committed to expressing their point of view. And what I found in all cases is this is at least from my perspective, but I think it was even more than from my perspective, I think it was, it was pretty objectively true that when I was really going at people 
that is like my parents, it was, um, it was amazing what happened, just how they crumbled and how they looked just foolish and immature and dishonest and unethical. And it was just like, wow, just for me to do that was, was such an amazing experience to really see that. And there were repercussions. You know, they definitely took it out on me and they, they tried to destroy my life afterward in a lot of different ways. And they, they lied about the interactions because none of it was recorded. So what, you know, afterwards they spun it into that I was crazy and I was this and I was that. But being there and seeing how it really was, was, was quite amazing to really interview them in that way and to, to not let their lies pass and, and to, to not do a softball interview, to not be gentle about it, it's just to, to speak my mind and to go at people. And and I don't know that that's I don't want to be that hardcore with people, on a, on a show. But there's part of me that would would like to for the sake of getting out the truth and changing the world. So, so I, I guess you have another question, Andrew. Yeah, I do. And actually, what you're saying about uh, sort of grilling parents sort of segues into it. Um, so about three years ago, um, I sort of had that kind of interview where I had been exploring my history, um, just by myself and really like thinking about the nature of my relationship with my parents. And then I had like this sort of interview thing where I went in and I questioned them and, uh, it just didn't go well. And so then, um, a little while after that, I just decided I was going to be done with them and not interact with them anymore. And now I'm in therapy and I'm um, I'm like coming up on stuff in my history. So a therapist will ask me about like when certain things happened and I can't always answer exactly when those things were. Right. So it came into my mind to send an email to my parents asking when certain events occurred. Um. And I was just wondering if you had any thoughts or advice about that. Like some of my friends asked me like what I was feeling as I was writing the questions and sort of what I'm thinking I could get out of an answer from them. Right. And I'm, I'm not sure exactly. Wow. Wow. I have split feelings about that. That's, that's a great question. The, it's something that actually that I go through right now at the present time because I haven't spoken with my parents in more than three years. And definitely uh, there are times that things come up where I would like to know things. Like I like, I know my, they, my parents hired a, a black nanny when I was very little and she was abusive to me. And I would like to know more details about that. I, I really would like to know how old was I when they hired her? How many hours a day did they hire her for? How many days a week? Things like this. And it's, it's like, since I don't talk to my parents and I don't respond to their emails, I don't have a chance to ask them that. And in a way, so it's sort of left hanging and it's nebulous. And that, that's, um, and they're both, my, both my parents are still alive. So I, I debate that. And for me, the, the trade-off is like, I don't get the information, but then I don't have to deal with them. And I don't really want to deal with them at all. I don't want to talk to them. I don't like, and it's not that I'm furious at them anymore because I don't find myself particularly angry these days. I just, 
they're like a girlfriend who was horrible to me that I've broken up with. And I'm just like, I'm done with it. I don't want to see her again. And so in your case, I think it's like, obviously it's like you have a right to that information. It sounds like it would be very helpful. And it's a question of like, I guess how much of a sacrifice it would be to try to get that information. And I guess I would formulate it if it was my life to do a cost benefit analysis to see well, what's the what's the benefit? What's the reality of getting this information from them? How useful will this information be? How necessary is it to my growth? And how much of a cost would it be to get that? What what will the consequences be? You know. And so what I heard you say early on was you did. I don't know if I'm getting your words exactly right, but that you confronted them somehow and that it didn't go well. So I think that would, that was something that the question for me. I don't know if you feel comfortable talking about it, but I was curious and I totally get it if you don't feel comfortable talking about it. But when you sure. said it didn't go well, are, are, are you comfortable to explain that a little bit more? Because yeah. that for me, that for me would be a key part in understanding a little bit more about, about your parents. Because I could, I could think there would be some times where I would say to someone, listen, reaching out to your parents just sounds like a big toxic mess. And maybe the information is, it's stuff that, you know, you can do through self-exploration, find enough about that so you don't really even need to interact with them. Your, your parents sound horrible. Whereas in other cases, it might be like, you know, your parents did horrible things to you, but maybe they're reasonable enough that it's worth it to interact with them in order to get the information. So that's where I wouldn't, in your case, have enough to go on to be able to give any more advice than that. But so if you're comfortable to talk about it, I was just curious, like, wh how did the confrontation go? Sure. In what way did it not go well? Um, well, pretty much for the conversation, I was talking to my mother and my dad was just in the other room and sometimes he would pop in with like some kind of nasty comment about something I'd said and then he'd pop out. Um, so there was that. So very and, disrespectful. Yeah, very. And just, he was basically expressing like that he thought that what I was saying was ridiculous. Um, and then my mother, she kind of listened to me, um, but uh, she sort of would play like she didn't remember certain things or, I mean, pretty big things that how do you not remember? Um, it just is not believable. It, someone wouldn't remember them. Um, or she would, like one thing that I brought up was that they required me and my brothers to, um, before bed, say goodnight and that we loved him and, like, give him a hug and a kiss before going to bed. Mm. And I had said, like, I mean, um, did you ever notice that I was, like, reluctant to do that? And, like, underneath, um, like, playing the part that I was supposed to, I just hated you. Oh, you said that yeah. to her. Whoa, man. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, and she just, like, was, you must be remembering wrong or something. Just this, like, trying to do some crazy making with me. Right, so she like, denied you don't know. reality. Yeah, exactly. Um, so, yeah, I mean, that was basically how it went. Um, and then uh, I sort of had a little bit of contact after that with them but um shortly after i sent the email that 
I didn't want to talk to them anymore. And then for three years, they just didn't send me any emails. I got a few emails from like family members, like aunts and uncles and stuff, but nothing directly from my parents. Right. So your family, your aunts and uncles reaching out to you to be nice or were they being like spies? Um, I only asked that because I've had family members be spies and I was like, wow, it's really interesting how they work. They all go back and tell my parents. Yeah. Um, well, one aunt, she was like just kind of nasty, like um, whatever she heard that was going on with me, she like said all this uh, like mean stuff um, and just was trying to antagonize me. Um, a few others like invited me to different family events like they're not aware that something's going on, like not aware of, oh, Andrew just disappeared from the family. Right. Huh. Well, it's interesting what you share because it, it just – is it okay if I give you just feedback on what you shared about that confrontation with your mother and father? Please. All right. Because it sounds like what you were saying was very reasonable and you were actually expressing what you would have liked to have been able to express when you were a kid. And you were just going with your personal experience of what it was like with them forcing you to say all this stuff and hug them and kiss them and all that. And so it sounds like your dad was just denying your reality, undermining you, belittling you and being mean. And, and not even really listening to you and not even directly interacting, but just coming in and sniping in a not nice way. That's what it sounded like to me. Yeah. And, and it sounds like your mom was like just undermining your emotional reality and playing a little dumb at the same time. And, exactly. And it's like, and so I guess when I say those, it's like, those are definitely familiar. Those are nice, pretty fairly common tactics of parents when they're under fire. I mean, my mom is a master of playing dumb and it's like, and the funny thing is she's an incredibly smart woman. And so it's interesting that one of her basic defenses is to play dumb. And, right. and my dad is like, my dad uses a slightly different defense. Actually, I have other family members who do a bit more what your dad does, which is just shut down and then just do these like belittling nasty attacks and then retreats, almost like a really nasty form of guerrilla warfare. That's it's like I have some fa family members who do that, but my dad more um, just goes strongly on the offense. And, and it's like, I don't know. So when I hear about your parents, it's like the idea of asking them for specific information. It's like, I guess what I would think then is if you really want those, I don't know, dates about what's, when stuff happened and specific information, it sounds like finding the family member who is probably the most gentle and do it in a, if, you, if the goal is really just to get information as opposed to express your feelings, then to do it in the, in the least confrontational way possible to make it the most likely that you'll get the information. And it's possible you'll get it. And, it. and who knows, it could be very useful. I mean, and this is the other thing, I think. With confronting parents or trying to get information out of them, no matter what happens, anything that they respond, anything that they do or don't do can be very useful. 
If they don't say anything and they don't reply to you, it's still useful. That's information. If they reply in a nasty way, that's information. If they try to suck you back in but don't give you the information you want, that's useful. If they give you the information you want and then attack you in the also, that's useful because you can learn from that. And I think that to me, the key that I've gotten in having, well, now decades of confrontations with my parents and then sometimes years of no contact and then going back and trying is that one thing I've learned and, and sometimes need to relearn um, is that, well, and now that's funny, I'm losing my train of thought, but that it's um, one thing is that it's it's all useful. Oh, I know what I was going to say. And that every single thing that happens in those interactions and every single bit of feedback or lack of feedback that they give me, every single way that they respond, that gives me a very clear indication about how they treated me when I was a little kid. And so that's the real information that I get. And also by watching my responses, by watching my fears and reaching out to them, watching my feelings come up, my thoughts, my memories, this also are very clear indicators of how I felt as a little child. So that's, that's the real benefit for me. It's like sometimes there's the ostensible surface stuff that I'm going to confront them about and the stuff that I'm trying to get from them. But underneath it is all the subtext. So it's an amazing amount of material that can be mined out of interacting with my parents, especially if I do it in a really conscious way. So that's what I'm thinking, that whatever it is that you're trying to get from them could be on, on one, in one way sort of like the surface level of the information, but then there's just the whole stuff that goes along with it. Even the fact that you're thinking about it or talking with a therapist or journaling about it or whatever you do or asking me about it is all like – it's all information about right. <laughs> your childhood that could be very, very useful. So in a way, it's like whether you actually go for it and ask them or not, it's like already it's just the process of gaining all this information that, that's – you know, has the potential to be incredibly growth provoking because this is the stuff that can be mined into, you know, and converted into the real gold. So that, I guess, would be my reply. I don't know. Is there anything else you wanted to ask about that? Because I know I just said a lot about your life and I don't know. I don't know how correct I actually am. It's just a lot of it was about my life also and relating to you. Sure. No, that was that was helpful. Um, I mean, like another thing that I did in sort of trying to think about if I was going to go forward with this was I had a sort of a role play with a friend where they were me and I was my mom and he, the friend so they, played they, out. They were, they were you and you were your, yeah. I see. So you put yourself in your mom's shoes to the best of your ability and they played you. Yeah. And, um, just like starting with the first question I was going to ask and just being super open and curious and, um, not, sort of um putting out any any sort of judgments just like reserving those judgments right and it was super illuminating um, wow. just feeling things as my mother it was yes just all the th different things that i was thinking um it was great and did your friend so your friend knew you pretty well right uh yeah so he got to play – he or she got to play the part of you in an effective way. That It sounds fascinating. I actually really admire you. Good for you, man. Thanks. So I don't know actually how many callers there are and how much time uh, I have per caller, but maybe um, if there's more people, we should keep going. And I don't know. If there's more stuff you have, maybe you can come back, Andrew. Yeah, I'll stick around, and if there's any empty time, pop back in. Thanks, Drew. Okay. Thanks.
Yeah, yeah, it was a pleasure. Thank you. All right, thanks, Andrew. Uh, our next caller today is Casey. Go ahead, Casey. Hello, hello. Uh, hey, uh, Siege. The Siege is my name. Siege. Yeah. How's it going? Nice to uh, nice to hear your voice. Um, it was nice to hear yours too. I just wanted to start out by saying uh, I've been listening to uh, Steph on YouTube for a long time, but I joined the community after you were doing a Sunday show with him, and I had wished that. I had heard that live, so I could call in. Hey, dig it, man. Well, here you are. Uh, so I wish the two of you were here together, but you're here, so uh, <laughs> that's better than nothing, I guess. Uh, um, so, uh, so where are you is, calling from? Uh, I'm calling uh, from the Bible Belt. <laughs> that's, oh, wow. about as, that's about as specific as I'm going to be. Well, God bless, brother. <laughs> Thanks. Um, so this is going to be a really long setup to this question, but uh, bear with me. All right. I'm all ears. Uh, I know you're a therapist, or you were. Yeah. Um, and, uh, well, my history with therapy has not exactly been pleasant. Uh, Mine neither. In, in second grade is the earliest I can remember they had me put on uh, one of those drugs. I think the first one was Ritalin, that, that everybody's first drug, isn't it? Um, and uh, then uh, when I was 12, almost 13, they had me locked in a uh, hospital in uh, Georgia called the Bradley Center, where I spent Thanksgiving and almost didn't get out in time for Christmas. Hmm. A and uh, then... Uh, when I was uh, 19, they had me uh, committed to North Alabama Regional Hospital in Decatur, Alabama. Mm. Um, this was already after I was old enough to be out of the house. And uh, actually, before that, there was a, in, when I was 18, they convinced me to admit myself into a, a hospital. And then there were other places after that that they had convinced me to admit myself into or that I had gone ahead and done to avoid commitment again. And aside from these places, uh, which were not pleasant, especially North Alabama regional, that was, that was the worst. I mean, I, I, I hear that the, the Bryce is worse, but, uh, I've never been there fortunately. Um, so aside from these places, for most of my life, they had me on the drugs Tegretol and Melaril, occasionally throwing in a third one, uh, Klonopin at one point, Effexor at one point. And, uh, so Tegretol and, being a, what, a mood stabilizer, Melaril being an old-school antipsychotic, Klonopin being a benzo anti-anxiety drug, and what Effexor being one of the slightly older antidepressants? You know more than I do, I guess. I just Yeah, that's what they I are. I just took them because they told me. I mean, but, but I, but I, any one of those, any, and any one of those could be extremely harmful and hard to get off. They were, yeah. Um, so, uh, yeah, I, I had been trying for a while to convince myself to get off them, and I was, been, I was pretty much forced to to go to uh, therapists and psychiatrists, and uh, and even after I was in the regional, they had me. Uh, they applied for uh, disability for me, so I kind of had to be in order to keep that, which they, you know, they got me stuck in that permanent underclass stuff, as always 
talking about by doing that. So in order to keep that and the and the Medicaid and Medicare that came with it, I had to uh, I had to uh, um, uh, I just lost my train of thought. Uh, I, I had to keep going to treatment. Uh, right. Treatment and, with quotes around it. <laughs> well, that I I can't do that in, in vocal, but yeah, uh, I, if you could see me, I would be doing the air quotes there. Oh yeah, you uh, got it. <laughs> so I would uh, uh, I I would have to go you know, to the mental health center, which was actually the worst uh, mental 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 health in quotes also. Yeah, yeah. Uh, which I, I I continued going there till I could find. Uh, external places I could go and uh, eventually back in 09 uh, a friend of mine had recently been diagnosed with the same crap that I was uh, and uh, put on the same drugs I was and that was the point where I snapped and I said okay you can do this to me you can't do this to my friend and I made the commitment to get off mine with him so right. he would have the support he needed so what diagnosed with uh schizoaffective or bipolar or schizophrenia one of those fun I, bipolar is the diagnosis i've held since uh right. ni- 92 93 sometime in that time and Shit. uh adhd has come and gone as a diagnosis uh schizophrenia only lasted for one day in regional i mean to show you how serious they were i was able to make that diagnosis go away by boycotting their treatments in there so <laughs> yeah that's how much they really believe in their diagnoses uh so um uh, so I got off. You know, I kept it a secret that I was off my meds for two years, throwing them away, throwing Pretty them smart, away right? one pill at a time. So I would people, say that's so very, Everybody very smart. would think I was on them, continuing to go into these treatments, but manipulating them instead of actually. And I, I actually continued to to go to the treatments and manipulate them even after I came out about being off my meds. Um, and uh, it was earlier. Well, no, this is actually 2013. It was last year. When I uh, I couldn't go to my psychiatrist anymore because of transportation issues, and you know I tried to get an actual psychologist, a therapist that I could actually talk to, and I had to fire her after two appointments because she seems too tied to mainstream, and I had I had all but given up when I on on I mean thinking I was going to go it alone, and then I heard you on. The show with Steph, and I'm like, there are people that can help. There are people there are, that there are, there are reject some. mainstream. And so my question, after all this huge long setup, is how do I go about finding someone like you? Woo. Okay. So could I? Uh, can I? Could we talk for a little bit and I ask you some more questions? Uh, sure. Sure. So, so let me see. I just want to. When did they start you on Ritalin? What were you? Eight or ten or seven or something? Uh, I was in second grade, so oh, so seven so probably. probably somewhere in that area, yeah, seven or eight, um, and then first hospitalized at twelve, Almost, yeah, twelve going 13, on thirteen, thirteen, yeah. and got diagnosed as bipolar twenty-one years ago. I have no idea how old you are. I'm presuming twenties, <laughs> thirties, something like that. And, well, um, or if you I, feel comfortable, <laughs> uh, I look a lot younger than I am. There's that. Right. So, <laughs> uh, so yeah, it's but, like, uh, so, but anyway, so I'm, yeah. So how do you, so your question is, 
how do you go ahead finding someone who works somewhat more or less within the mental health system who is going to be useful to you? That sounds like your question to me. How do you even? Well, they start? don't. They don't necessarily have to. I see. I've I've given up on the trying to fool the state thing. Part of it. I mean, I'm like, I don't even care anymore. I'm I'm making right. money from my art now. Right. No, no, no. But it sounds like you want to find someone, a therapist who can help you. Uh, that's yeah. Your, that's your question, right? Yes. Yes. And so, like, so you're not taking the psychiatric drugs anymore, right? No, I'm not. I'm not even pretending to take them anymore. Right. Everybody knows I'm awful. Right. I'm just trying to get the facts. So, yeah. so you're not, so you're not taking the drugs and you want to find a therapist who could be useful. And so then there's, there's a lot of questions. One, and, and I'll, I, I, one would be like, do you, do you have health insurance or not? If you do have health insurance, do you want to use it or would you rather pay out of pocket? These, that's a sort of, I, a I, I have some health insurance, but it probably wouldn't work on anything as not mainstream. What, are you, so you have like so you don't have Medicare anymore or Medicaid and well I I have a a, a, a Humana Medicare plan that I use I see so you have to find someone who's on the Humana Medicare list you can't find just a regular general Medicare provider right uh I get I don't know how it works <laughs> right right a lot of, that, they change this every year. Right, and a lot of what they, times they do, they take these big plans like Medicare, and then they they basically put you in one of those managed care things. So then, it very much limits your treatment options. So you have to find a therapist or or a treatment provider who t also takes Humana Medicare. So that definitely does limit it. But, and I don't know. Well, if you have some external financial resources, that eases things up significantly, and it basically gets you out of the whole system in a lot of ways. Well, I'm a starving artist, so I wouldn't be able to afford much, but I'm pretty sure that uh, if I found somebody who would help, I could find somebody who could help me raise the funds. Right. Okay. And then and then it's a question of depending on where you are. I mean, I always think it's if someone really wants therapy, it's often – it's preferable to meet with someone in person. So depending on where a person is, it could be very difficult. If you're in some random – let's say a rural location in the Bible Belt – it's probably going to be less less likely that you're going to find someone. If you're in a big city in the Bible Belt, well, who knows? It may be more likely. If you're in New York City or you're in Boston or you know, you're in L.A. or San Francisco or Chicago, well, then your chances go way up that you're likely to find someone. On the other hand, if you're willing to try to find someone who is, is you're going to do, uh, let's say, therapy over the telephone or Skype. It's better than nothing. It's definitely, well, it, it yes. Um, and so this is what it is. I think there's all like a whole range of what's ideal versus what will help you at, at the bottom of the list. And then it's just like trying to make it as close to ideal as possible and then being practical. So I think most therapists would rather meet with someone in person. I mean, it's just better. On the other hand, it's like, and so there's going to be fewer therapists that are willing to do telephone and Skype, but then there are a lot of them. I think one thing that tends to work the best is to, if you have friends who've had somewhat similar issues to that you're going through and they have a therapist, often a friend can make a referral. And, that, that, and then you get someone who you can trust from someone that you trust. And that, that tends to start relationships off on the best foot. So that, that's one way to do it, to put it out there to people that you know and trust. Do you have a therapist who you might recommend that also might be taking people that could work with me for this is my budgetary range, who's willing to work over Skype or over the phone? Um, There's no one I really trust right now. No one at all. Well, 
last uh, last week I walked in on the one person that I did trust uh, violating my trust in my apartment. Right. So, so well, that's okay. So then, well, then it's a question of um, testing out people, putting out putting out feelers. Because also, what you described in about your experiences in psychiatry, I don't want to say the mental health system because mental health has a positive ring to it. To me, psychiatry just uh, kind of te- tells it for what it is. That, yeah, psychiatrists are just drug pushers. I mean, I right, think everybody but, knows this, but pretty much drug pushers and people who, I mean, most psychiatrists nowadays practice biological psychiatry, which to me is just generally an extremely harmful pseudoscience. I, I don't but, know what that is. Is that, is that the giving the drugs that, that they do? Bio, it's the idea that uh, people's emotional problems are actually biological brain illnesses and they need to be treated as such with drugs, with forcing uh, people to do things they don't want to do, hospitalizing yeah. them, giving things like electroconvulsive therapy. That's sort of the realm of psychiatry. Yeah, they, they, tricked, they tricked my parents into thinking I was biologically sick and my mother still believes it. So Right. Well, I, bipolar, bipolar is, is nowadays considered a biological mental illness. It's it's a farce. It, I don't. I don't. It know. didn't exist when I was first diagnosed. It was they called it by another name. It was a uh, manic, manic depressive disorder. Right, and, and it, then was, they, it was it was considered fairly uncommon. Now it's like extremely common. But but just just to give you a quick bit of feedback more to get to your question. Um, so your experiences from what you described to me in the mental health system. I hate to say it. It's extremely common. I'm sure you know that too. But uh, I ha- I know a lot of people who have yeah. similar experiences. I just wish they'd yeah. open up to me because I, I think if they knew that I I right. know what they're going through, then maybe well, I would have some friends that I could trust. Well, here's what I would suggest to you: that have you, there's there's certain resources on the internet that will give you more access to finding people out uh, and finding people that will be more useful and finding more allies. Because I personally have talked to probably by now thousands of people who have shared stories that are similar to yours. And thousands of people who have come out of the mental health system, who've gotten off their meds, and some of them have actually even made use of therapists. And I've helped some. I've been the therapist for some of those people, but there are a lot of therapists out there who are useful. Some charge there's only a lot of one them. of you, and there's thousands of them. Oh <laughs> uh, no, there's there's other therapists who I think are very useful, who I know have helped people, and I know a lot of people who have had similar situations in the mental health system. And situations- what I mean is. You can't help them all because you're just. Oh no, no, I, I'm not a therapist anymore either. It's just like I'm putting my energies in other directions. So I don't know. Do you have a pen? Uh, I was just getting one when you were saying you have resources. <laughs> okay, so I'm I'm just going to give them off the top of my head, but I would the first place I would go to is the blog madinamerica.com. Mad in America.com. All right. Yeah, I actually am a blogger there by chance, and I don't. I don't write as much as I probably should, but I've been spreading myself pretty thin. But that's a great place to explore. Not everybody that writes on that blog is as radical as I am, but there are other people that are. I know right now um, one of the main people who blogs at MaddenAmerica.com is named Laura Delano. She's a friend of mine. She's a mental health survivor. She was diagnosed with bipolar. She's completely out of the mental health system, got off all her meds. She blogs on there. She's actually in my new movie, which just came out two weeks ago, which is about coming – it's called Coming Off Psych Drugs. And oh, she's, wish so I was she's, in that movie. Well, <laughs> you, you would have fit in nicely. It would have been actually good to hear, hear your story. There, it, it literally just came out a couple weeks ago. There's a trailer on YouTube for it. If, if I, it's on my website, which is wildtruth.net. 
And if you look under my DVDs, it's the first one. It's called Coming Off Psych Drugs. But it's um, – It was and, really hard to get off them without the doctor because, you know, I, I had to oh, come no. up with the plan. They're designed to keep you on them without the doctor telling you to get off. Exactly. And so, so basically what you're describing is very much what people talk about in my movie. But so on uh, the reason I'm telling you about MaddenAmerica.com is, first of all, I mean, with, with any website – even with mine, use your judgment. If you like it and you feel comfortable with it, go for it. If you don't like it, don't trust it. I mean, your judgment is the best thing that you have going for you to help you make your life better. That's what I've learned with people. Don't trust me because I say it. Trust, trust yourself. I, I so, sooner trust you than the one in the office down at the mental health center. But that doesn't say very much. I trust the homeless no. guy before I trust him. <laughs> oh, definitely. A lot of homeless people have a lot to say. And they have a lot, a lot of homeless people that I've talked to have a lot of experience in the mental health system. And part of why they're homeless is they said, fuck you to the mental health system. I'd rather be homeless because at least I'm free. You can't put your hooks in me when I do what I want. But so anyways, Laura Delano um, is right now compiling a list of mental health providers and including psychiatrists who are willing to help people taper off drugs. And, and so it's, there are some, and she's been consulting me about that list because I know people in different places, but she's compiling a list. I know there's, a, there's another website called mindfreedom.org. I don't know if you know Mind Freedom. These are like the big anti, the, basically the big progressive, radical, critical of psychiatry websites that if, you know, and they, and, and a friend of mine who's a therapist named Matthew Morrissey, he and I wrote a book about four years ago, uh, called A Way Out of Madness, Dealing with Your Family After You've Been Diagnosed with a Mental Disorder. And he is a, a psychotherapist in San Francisco who himself was hospitalized, was diagnosed with psychosis, and was put on Risperdal, which is an antipsychotic. He got off oh. it. He's been off it for over a decade, maybe over yeah, 15 Yeah, I know someone who's on that. <laughs> right. It's a nasty one. And it's, it's an expensive nasty one, too. But he compiled a list for the website mindfreedom.org, and he's a board member of Mind Freedom. Mind Freedom is a radical, I, I don't, I mean, some people bristle at the term anti-psychiatry, but that's all I say. It's, it's against uh, the traditional mental health system. That's another uh, website. Mindfreedom.org and Matthew Morrissey there. Yeah, yeah, he compiled a list. I don't know how up-to-date his list is. Laura Delano is compiling a list right now of therapists that are progressive, that are willing to help people get off drugs. Psych drugs. Now, the reason you may, you don't need to get off psych drugs. You've already done it, and yeah. got. And, and you know what? Since you're in the Bible Belt, bless you, man. Good job. I mean, I, I think it's, <laughs> it's something. It's not easy to do. A lot of people have a very hard time doing it, and some people it's not that hard. Some people can't do it because it's just it's just they've been on them for too long, and it's too hard to get off. And and it's like I respect people whether they can or can't, but anyone who wants to get off the drugs should certainly be allowed to try. Oh. It is hard. I tried to get off drugs before that. I mean, not just one particular drug. The effects are I tried to get off by myself one time, and, and it just didn't work. No, it's I very just, hard. It's, I mean, and, the, and the doctor that gave it to me said that it is specifically designed that way. Yes, and, and clonopin, which is a benzo. It's a highly addictive benzodiazepine. That's hard as hell for people to get off. A lot of people, it's very, it takes years sometimes. It, you know uh, what I did with those? I sold them. They have a street value. Well. Clonopin does. I Melanoma. probably shouldn't say that on the air. <laughs> well, you didn't give your name. I mean, a lot of people do that. There's, there's, um, Melaril basically doesn't have a street value, or very rarely. Tegretol doesn't. Effects are pretty much doesn't. Clonopin definitely does. That's a big one. Um, there's only one antipsychotic I know that is that has a street value, and that's Seroquel. And 
which oh, is I was on that for a little bit of time. Yeah, people resell Seroquel. It's very popular in the jail system. A lot of a lot of prisoners uh, yeah. get get it, and they like it because it just totally zonks them out. And, I didn't but, know about that. I know that people saw that I was taking the clonopin, and they started offering me money for it. And I remembered that when I was getting off of them. Right. Yeah, and some people get off the drugs and keep getting the prescription because they can resell it. I don't think that's a good idea, but people do it. But anyways, so to to get back to the point that if you can find a therapist who is publicly willing to say they're willing to help people get off psych drugs right away, you've got someone who you know is pretty radical. That doesn't mean they're going to be a great therapist, but at least you know their point of view is going to align align with yours more. The other thing then is once you start finding okay, one final website that I really recommend reading is um, beyondmeds.com. It's by a yeah. former psychiatric patient who is, she's still maybe, I think maybe she's off all her drugs now, but she's had a hell of a time. She's been on like 20 or something different drugs. And she's got one of the most prominent blogs on the internet about getting off psych drugs and a progressive blog all about critical about, about the psych, psychiatric system. And so these are, and and basically, if you go to mindfreedom.org, if you go to madinamerica.com, if you go to um, and, and beyond and, magic and go, wild truth, yeah. Well, my my website is informational, but it doesn't have very many links to resources right now. So those those websites, though, you enter the world of of. of basically having a lot more information at your disposal to be able to find therapists. Then there are other groups that, like, there's one called ISPS. Dash us.org. And that's uh, I, I'm gonna need you to repeat that one. Yeah, I know. And I have a I, I've discovered that I have a slight slight speech impediment, so my S's don't sound good. I okay. S is in Samuel, P is in Paul, S is in Samuel, dash US is in United States dot org. ISPS dash US dot org. Yeah, on I their website. Yeah, ISPS dash US dot org. Exactly. Okay. And um, that's a list, uh, that, that's an organization mostly for professionals, uh, mental health professionals who want to help people who are diagnosed or labeled with psychosis, schizophrenia, bipolar, stuff like that. And they have a list of members that's publicly available on their website and they have it listed by state and by last name. Now, some of them are very progressive. Some of them are fairly traditional, but it's a, it's a starting place. So there's lots of ways to find people. The other thing is if you, the best People, honestly, that I would trust are the super progressive, well-connected psychiatric survivors. I would put you in the category of a psychiatric survivor. I don't know if you call yourself that, but that's the category I put people in. I had never considered calling myself that, but it, it works. Right. <laughs> right. And so basically progressive psychiatric survivors are the ones who they don't bullshit anybody. They're not going to say stuff because it sounds good. So they're the ones that I trust the most, but there are some therapists that are very well respected by psychiatric survivors. And they're the ones that I trust also. Because oh, I use the diagnosis when it meets my, uh, right. When it, when it, when it suits my, my benefits. Yeah. Well, that's the one thing that it can be of value, but anyway, so those are some good places to start. Then the thing is once you find a therapist, then I would say you ask them a lot of questions and you, you need to test them for yourself to find out if they have value for you. You want to know their philosophy. You want to know their point of view. You want to know if they – you have to find out if they're going to be helpful. If you're meeting with them in person within the system, you want to find out, well, if you say the wrong thing, are they going to, are they going to hospitalize you? And if they are willing to do that, don't work with them. Then, then yeah, also that's, the, that's the thing I was really worried about with every therapist, every psychiatrist I've okay. ever had. I was worried about saying the wrong thing and being hospitalized. Right, which totally undoes their ability to be useful to you because if you have to censor what you're, say, what you're saying to your therapist, 
And how are they supposed to help you? Because they don't even know who you are because you're censoring yourself. But on the other hand, it's very wise to censor yourself if you're in the position you were in with those kind of diagnoses, those kind of medications, and that kind of hospitalization history, because they can pull the plug on you and they'll send you right back. And a lot of therapists will do it. And so it's like, I wouldn't work with them if I were you. But then the thing is, if you're working remotely, if you're paying a fee, if you're paying with PayPal, or you're sending checks to a therapist, they're much less likely to harm you. And the other thing is, I've worked with clients who didn't even give me their name. Like, you said your name was Siege. You told yeah. me you're in the, the Bible Belt. Well, that narrows it down to about, <laughs> about 75 million men. Do, do you know what I mean? And so well, there are the, th- the siege of the only the siege. <laughs> right. So. so so what I found is that I had clients who came to me who didn't want to tell me their names. They didn't want to give me their birthday. They didn't want to give me any ad- identifying information that I was asked. I, I was required to ask from them to be able to keep proper notes as a therapist, as a licensed therapist. But they said, I don't want to give it. And I told them, you don't have to. I would write down, they'd say, well, what are you going to do about it then? I'd say, I'll just write down client refused to give his name. Client refused to give his birthday. And I said, you don't, don't give me information you don't want to. So like the way we're talking now, I think if you work at it, you can find a therapist who, who may not even require your name. And, and in that way, how can they harm you if they don't even know your name? On the other hand, they're, yeah, they're IP addresses and things like that. Yeah. But it's, it's like, I think the most important thing is to find someone that you feel really comfortable with and test them. And if you don't feel comfortable with them, like you said, with that therapist or psychiatrist, get rid of them after two sessions. But at first, there's no reason that they have to interview you. I think if you feel like you need to do it, you interview them. And a good therapist will let you interview them because they will understand exactly the reason you're interviewing them because they know how vulnerable and how intimate the therapy relationship is. And they know that for it to be of value, you have to feel comfortable. So I would say, just remember that you have a full 100% right to interview the therapist for as long as you need. And by the way, if you interviewing a therapist, if it, even if it needs to go on for weeks or months, that can be very therapeutic because it's like most people who have been in the system and have been harmed by the mental health system, have been harmed by their parents, haven't had a lot of experience, especially early on, with being in the power position. And if you're doing the interviewing, you're more in the power position. And that can be very, very healing. So that's basically my advice in a nutshell. There are some resources to start with. There are some concepts to start with. And I'd say that's, that's at least a place to start. And who knows? You might find someone. There are some people out there. Yeah, I wish it weren't necessary. I'd have been better off with the problems I started with before the therapy came along. Probably true. Probably yeah. true. But anyways, I hope that was useful, and if you're okay, let's go on to the next caller. All right. Well, thank you very much, uh, Mr. McLeary. You have a, a great rest of the show. And thank you, Mr. Siege. <laughs> All right. The next caller today is Drew. Hey, what's up? How's it going? Oh, good. How are you? I'm I'm really nervous. Oh. <laughs> uh... Well, if it makes you feel better, about five minutes before 10, before the call, so was I. <laughs> All right. Um, so my questions um, are okay, basically... Okay, so wait, can I ask you first, what are you nervous about? Uh, I'm nervous if about you, talking you to you. If you feel comfortable sharing, what specifically? Um, I have a lot of respect for you. And um, so, like, I'm talking to a guy I have a lot of respect for that I've never talked to before. Oh, <laughs> publicly on the air, no less. Yeah, that too. Oh, well, you're a courageous guy. Go, I'm, I'm good, good to hear what you're saying. <laughs> okay, so my questions, I have three of them, and they're kind of surrounding um, giving up uh, addictive and dissociative um, behaviors uh, in order to speed up um, the self-therapy process. 
Okay. And it's it's something I've been trying to work on. And um, uh, for for certain behaviors, like I would make some progress, and then I, I'd re- I'd relapse one day, and then that would just cause like this cycle where, well, not a cycle. I just like keep relapsing after that day. Um, so my first question is like, um, I know that you've 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 like given up a lot of things. Um, uh. Maybe, maybe I've written about having given up them in the past. Some of them I oh. probably have gone back to, so I don't want to give any false impressions. Okay, so you you've at least had some experience of trying to give up things. Uh, um, yeah, well, for ten years I basically didn't drink. Didn't like basically not basically I didn't for ten years I didn't drink, um, have romantic relationships, do any drugs, smoke cigarettes. Pretty much didn't date. So. For two years, I didn't masturbate. Um, right. that, that, that's sort of my, that's sort of my uh, abstinence resume. <laughs> now, okay. now, now it's a little bit more squishy, but <laughs> I still pretty much don't do any of those things, but do some a little bit here and there. But anyway, so anyways, go on. Well, yeah, I'm looking to take a break. So, like, what have you found to be like the best way to approach a relapse to um to get the most out of it and to um to to get going again? Ooh, I'm not sure I understand your question. So a relapse, meaning like if I was not drinking and then I started drinking and I would call that a relapse. Is that, is that yeah. what you mean? Do you care yeah, to be that's more, exactly. Do you care to be very specific? Because that would probably help me. And then I, if you don't, I understand. I can keep um, it. So like give an example? Yeah, if you want to give a personal example, it certainly makes it easier for me to talk about it. Otherwise, we can keep it general. But it all depends on your comfort level. Sure. Um, I can talk about sugar. Um, so basically like I'll go, I'll go quite a while without having like soda or candy or something like that. Okay. And then maybe like I'll have a really stressful day and I'll use that to comfort myself. Right. And, um, then like the next day I'll be like, Oh, like I just, I just had soda yesterday. Like, uh, I, I relapsed. Like the, what's the point of like trying again? Right. Do you feel guilty or anything like that? Do you have feelings around that? Or it just it just takes away your motivation to uh, start to start being abstinent from those things again? Um, there is there is some a little bit of shame and it also kind of takes away my motivation. Yeah. Right. So can you reframe your question for me in the context of candy and soda? Um, So. Um, is, is that okay that I'm asking? Yeah, I'm. I'm just trying to think how to do that. Yeah, I'm trying to. Um, like your question sounded like how to deal with relapses and what's the best way to. I guess. I guess. Um, what I was looking for is like um, advice for approaching like parts work or journaling in order parts, to. Parts work. Yeah, something like that. I don't know what parts work is. Oh, like Miko system IFS. Okay. Oh, I see. So like dealing with internal parts of yourself. Yeah. Right. So, but, but about, I don't know, how about I riff a little bit on the relapse question and then sure. you come <laughs> in and, 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 and ask me specific questions on anything that I'm talking about. Great. So it sounds like, okay, so you're specifically saying you would not like eat candy or drink soda for a while to right. speed up to speed up your healing process and it would somehow make you feel better or healthier. And then you'd be having a stressful day and you'd go back and have a, have some candy or have some soda. And then maybe afterwards you'd feel some shame and then you'd be like, Oh, what's the point of, I, I, I stopped it. I had a relapse. Um, 
it's just it's it's just been a waste because I had a relapse and you know I, I I don't know if you were counting time like I was three months without having it now it's just all ruined and I'm back to nothing so forget it I might as well just eat all the candy I want whenever I feel like it because I obviously don't have the self discipline something along those lines yeah pretty much right well I guess one thing I would say is hmm first that I relate to you from having personal experience of not having done things, certain things for a long time, and then having gone back to them. I personally, I don't know. I just don't jive with the word relapse because to me, it medicalizes it somehow and it makes it like something very bad has happened. And, okay. and so I don't know. I just, I just never felt comfortable with the word relapse because then it's like, it's sort of like, I don't know if I'm allowed to curse on this show, but it's sort of like, Oh God, I fucked up. But <laughs> some some of the feelings around that concept of relapse I've had. I remember, I'll be personal if it's okay with you. Sure. I didn't masturbate for two years, and I was really doing it as an experiment and a practice in self discipline and as a chance to really be very very internal and to get to know myself better. And I remember when I first masturbated, oh the feelings of shame that came up and like I let myself down and it was it was really. A lot of feelings that were that was very painful, and because it was such a private thing, I couldn't even talk about it with almost anybody. Thankfully, I could talk about it with my best friend, and I really feel grateful that I had a friend that I could talk about it with. But it was just like that was the other thing. I felt so lonely, and and so it was like in the long run, though, it's like I don't think these so-called relapses are a bad thing because it's like we're human and we're not perfect. And, you know, sometimes stressful times do come. Oh, here's a great example. Like, I, I didn't smoke cigarettes for 14 years. I went back to smoking for a while. And I was hitchhiking a lot, and I would smoke sometimes. Then I didn't smoke. I hadn't smoked for a year and a half. Except I've been dating someone, which is another thing you could say I, quote, relapsed with. I hadn't been involved with anyone, but I'm exploring that. And it actually feels good to be involved with someone in a, in a way. I'm, I'm going really, really slow, but there's a lot of feelings that come up. And I think, like, trying new things sometimes can be healthy and exploring the feelings that come up. Like, if you feel shame, it's like my feeling is, well, probably that shame is connected to something very old in your life because, right. because like – there's no reason that eating candy or having a glass of soda should naturally trigger shame. So it's probably something that's historical in your past, just a guess, a okay. speculation, because that's based on my experience. But I haven't smoked in a while, except oddly, the person that I'm dating sometimes smokes and sometimes I'll have a cigarette with her. And it's like, it's kind of interesting for me. And I'm just like exploring, but I hadn't had a cigarette in a few weeks. I was up in Boston doing a, a screening of my brand new film, and I just arrived and I was staying with a friend of mine in the neighborhood of Back Bay. And I'd been there a half an hour and suddenly we heard this horrible sound go off. And we both looked at each other and her boyfriend was there. And we're all looking at each other and they, they said, that's not like a bomb. And I was like, you sure it wasn't a car backfiring? And they're like, nah, it was much louder than that. And then about 10 seconds later, another one. And then this big cloud of smoke came up and it was literally like two blocks away. We could see it right out their window. And it was the Boston Marathon bombing. And we went, we didn't know what it was. And we went downstairs because the, the news didn't have anything about it. And we saw all these people crying and screaming and in shock and saw this dude with his leg blown apart and blood everywhere. And it was like, we were right there. And my thought yeah. was, you know what? We went back upstairs because we didn't know. And we heard there were more bombs and people were saying they didn't know how many there were. So we went back upstairs. And my first thought was, you know, I want a fucking cigarette. 
And it was like, both of my friends don't smoke, but it was just like, in that stressful moment, I wanted to go back to my comfort food, which is a cigarette. It gives me a sense of comfort. And it's like, they didn't have one. And they're both like really serious about not smoking. So I was like, I'm, and I'm not going to go out and buy them. I have my limits. But I just think that one thing is to be gentle with ourselves. And if we, if we do go back to something that we quit, something that we feel a sense of pride with that we don't do, that we can use that to explore. And also as a real chance to be gentle with ourselves. Because what I've learned for myself, and I've seen it, I've seen it with a lot of other people, is that a lot of us were not treated gently in our lives. We, were, we had a lot of expectations put on us. And so no matter what we do as adults, we can learn to empathize with ourselves more and be gentle. And so, like you said, you, you would go into a cycle after you, quote, relapse. Like, right. you, would, you know, and, and so I think, like, that cycle can be studied because a lot of times those cycles are also historical. They tell us a lot about, you know, what happened in our past and how, you know, how often parental figures or people in power demotivated us and kind of broke our spirits. And so often as adults, we I find, and I find it for myself, that we we end up taking up the reins of what those adults did to us and we do to ourselves what they did to us. And so for me, it's like, it's been actually a really healing part of my process to say, you know what? It's not against the law to have a cigarette, Daniel. I'm not killing myself. It's actually probably good for me once in a while. It's actually good for me to date and see what it's like to kiss someone and to hold someone and, you know, try and be a little bit more intimate in, in a different way. And, and I've learned something from I've actually learned more from dating than I've learned from being celibate in recent years. I mean, I, I and I'll never take away from what I've learned by being celibate. And by the way, actually, I still am celibate. But it's like to shake up my life and to try things from a different angle. I, I really admire people that are willing to try things. So even in the most intense periods of my celibacy and not drinking and not smoking and not doing drugs at all. It's like as a therapist, I worked with people who were doing all those things. And, and I totally 100% respected their right to test things because everybody's in a different place. If anyone wants to try not eating candy and not drinking soda and not doing cigarettes and not smoking pot, not you know having sex and not dating and not masturbating or whatever it is, it's like there's things to be learned from it and there's things to be learned from those experiences. So, so I think in your case, it's like, well, I don't know if I'm babbling on here, but I just think like there's something to be learned in everything. And most importantly, from the feelings that come up when you're not doing the things and the feelings that come up when you are doing the things. So that's where it's like anything can be learned from. And this healing process, the self-therapy process or whatever you call it, is, is something that anything can be grist for that mill. So that, that's just what I thought. So I don't know how, how you feel about that answering your question. Um, yeah, I, I think that was, it was very, very valuable. Um, like I had never, never even considered like the cycle where like I have sugar one day and then I go into like a, a sugar cycle. Like I never thought that would be historical, but like when you said that, like, yeah, it could be. And so like, that's something I'm going to explore later. Yeah, yeah. And I like how you say it. It could be. It doesn't mean that it is because I think as someone like I, I consider myself a scientist so right. when you say it could be, that's a hypothesis and it's worth exploring. It might not be, but it could be. And so if you can explore that when in, with an open mind, who knows what you'll find. Okay. Okay. Um, so another question of mine is like, hey, what can I quick pause for a second? Sure. Are you still nervous? Um, less so. <laughs> cool, man. <laughs> okay. 
Um, so the next question of mine is, what made you want to do this in the first place? Um, the abstinences and the celibacies. Like from sex or abstinence from other things? Pretty much just everything. I think each thing was a little bit different, but okay. the, over, the overarching theme was that I wanted to be healthier. And I, I, I knew my life wasn't really working in a lot of ways. And I knew a lot of my patterns had a destructive element to them. Not Usually not pretty, not, not very extreme, but there were still some things that I could notice. And I wanted to just be as healthy as I could. And also, I was just becoming a therapist. And it's like right around the time when I was quitting a lot of stuff. It was like 26, 27 when I started really, as I would call it, like cleaning up my act. And I sort of, I felt this very strong call to be as pure as I could when I became a therapist. So I really just wanted to focus on being as healthy as I could so that I could also be as useful to the people I was working with. And also I felt like, and it wasn't all just because I was becoming a therapist, because becoming a therapist was a part of my process. But it also felt good to me when I was working with people who were like having all sorts of sex problems and all sorts of, I don't know, drug and alcohol problems, cigarette problems, interpersonal problems, food problems, um, all sorts of things that at least I had a sense that I was fairly clean in those areas and I knew I was working on them. I I, I don't know. Something that I have trouble with in my life, always have. And I think always will. I can't stand hypocrites. They drive me nuts. And so right. for me, when I saw like people coming to me and saying, you know, I'm really trying to quit smoking pot and it's like it's driving me nuts and it's very hard to quit. I, I don't think I would have felt comfortable sitting with that person and saying, you know, something I got to let you know, I smoke pot and I'm trying to quit, too, or I'm smoking pot and I'm comfortable with it. I, 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 would, I, I felt like I would have had to disclose that to someone who was coming to me for help. And I just somehow felt like I was less of a hypocrite if I was clean in that department. But, but that's not really entirely it. Mostly it was just like, like I could go down the list of each of the different things like that I was clean from. Like I quit smoking pot because I felt like I couldn't think very clearly when I was smoking pot. And I really wanted to know who am I, what is my brain like, and what are my emotions like without the input of that drug? I really wanted to know who I was. And I felt like I was using that drug sometimes to get away from myself. To go back to that word you originally used about dissociative things, it was kind right. of disso- at times it was a dissociative drug for me. Other times it would help me relax. Other times it was, you know, induced a lot of creativity in me. Sometimes it was just really fun. But there was that dissociative element, and it also muddled my mind. And it's like I wanted to know who I was without that drug. And I and sometimes I would, when I was nervous or felt sad or felt lonely, I would notice that I had an urge to go to that drug. And I was like, you know, I want to be able to deal with my sadness, my loneliness, and my isolation without having to run to a drug, any drug. And marijuana was one of those drugs. So it's like right. I got a sense of pride when I quit smoking pot. And I quit smoking pot around 1998 before I became a therapist. And I stayed away from it. Um, God, for well, well over 10 years, 12, 13 years. I've tried it again some in recent years, but, and it's been interesting. It's been very interesting to go back. A definite learning experience. But also, let's say, um, cigarettes. Cigarettes was just comfort food. It was just junk food for me. I noticed that, like, I'd wake up in the morning with my throat being sore, my lungs didn't feel as good, my body didn't feel as healthy, it cost a lot, my hands stank, made my breath stink. It was like, I know it's bad for your lungs. It's like, I couldn't exercise as well. It hurt my cardiovascular system. And I was just like, 
what the hell am I addicted to this crap for? And it was like, it made me, it gave me a sense of pride that I quit. And I quit that also, I think in 1998 and right. didn't start smoking again until 2010. But so I quit that and it just, it gave me a sense of pride and also a sense of like, you know, I'm in control of my life and I really liked that. Um, alcohol, I quit that in 98 also and didn't, I don't think I drank anything until 2009. I think I drank a little, maybe 2010, but not even one drink in that whole time. Um, except once I was the best man at a friend's wedding and I had a sip of champagne when I gave the toast. He said, someone handed me a glass of champagne and I felt guilty. So I'm not having a sip. So I had one sip of champagne in like 12 years or something, 11 years. But I think another thing was I noticed that I would sometimes drink because I felt social pressure and I'd go out with my friends sometimes and we'd be at some bar and it would be like, I'd be bored. I hated clubs. I hated bars. And I would just like get a drink to feel comfortable. And I was like, you know something, I don't even want to be in places where I don't feel comfortable sort of naturally. I'm not drawn to be here. I'm just being here because I want, I'm lonely and I was drinking to make myself feel comfortable. So for me, quitting alcohol was also part and parcel of avoiding places that I really didn't belong. And the other thing is I used to drink to feel comfortable around women. So I was like very insecure around women when I would like try when I'd be attracted to someone, I had no idea how to approach them. So when I would drink, it was a way to, for me to build up my courage and to facilitate me hooking up with girls, basically in my late teens and early twenties. And it's like, certainly by my early twenties, I was like, Daniel, this is fucked up. You, you have to learn how to be comfortable with who you are and how you feel about people. And if you need alcohol to do that, then you really need to take a good look at yourself. And so pretty much by my early twenties, I'd almost entirely stopped drinking. I don't think I got drunk after the age of like 23. And so sometimes I still, you know, have a couple of drinks and, and the thing is now, but, but from 98 to like 2009, I didn't drink at all. But now it's like, since I have no alcohol tolerance, I'll have a, if I have a glass of wine, which I, you know, very occasionally do, it's like, I get loopy after one glass and two glasses, I'm like over the top. So I don't know, I go back and, but I don't really feel so bad about it now. But I'm trying to think of other things. Um, sex, I quit that because I, for a lot of different reasons. But also I just felt like it wasn't enhancing my relationships. And it was like I was using it to build sort of a quick false intimacy. And I felt like it wasn't really building a true deep bond with other people. And also it was a chance for me to, by being celibate, to learn to explore who I was as a person. Um, much more and also to explore my history of being sexually abused and and my history of like other odd sexual relationships in my childhood and my history of sexual acting out and to really study why I did what I did and to really get to know myself better and also just to massively explore my sexuality, sexuality, my history of sexuality, my family history of sexuality, to explore my sexual needs, to explore my body, all these things without the external variable of doing it interactively with another person. And masturbation was just an extrapolated version of that for not masturbating. And it was like, I learned a lot. I, I really, really learned a lot through celibacy. And I, I'm a much more mature, healthier, better person. When I've been involved with this woman now, and it's like, I'm not the guy I was. It's like, the guy I, I am now in a relationship in the romantic sexual department is just not the guy that I was. And it's like, that's what celibacy has done to me. And the guy that I am now is, is way healthier, way more mature, and just a, a person that I like a lot more. I, I respect myself and admire myself a lot more. And that feels good. I don't feel like a shit. 
I used to feel like a shit a lot for things that I did. And it's like, I mean, I've done some things that were kind of bad in my life and I've done some things that were basically kind of average and things. And I was probably hard. I mean, I've talked to a lot of my ex-girlfriends from my twenties and talked about stuff that happened between us. And I, I, from the feedback I got, I was much harder on myself than they were on me. Most of them were like, dude, you were fine. But for me, it's like, no, that didn't pass my test of what it's cool to, to do and the things that I was thinking. So it's like, it's just a chance to clean up my act. And I just feel like now it's like, I respect what I do. I don't feel like I'm, I don't know. I I just feel like I'm acting out a lot less. And also I know a lot more about myself and about sex in general and about my body and about people's bodies and just, I don't know. So it's it's been just very growth, growth producing. So I don't know. Is that sort of along the lines of what you were asking? Um, yeah, that was, that was like exactly what I was looking for. (laughs) Um, so my last question, um, is, um, could you share, share a time when you, you had trouble, uh, resisting, um, like a behavior that you were wanting to abstain from during those 10 years? Uh, yeah. The, the one that jumps to my mind most obviously was when I was not masturbating for two years. That was hard. Right. I'm like, I, li- I, you know, I was, I was working as a therapist. I was living in New York city. It's like, when it came to being a therapist, I mean, people in therapy often talked about very, very sexual stuff. I heard about histories of sexual abuse all the time. But somehow it's like, I don't know. It just didn't like, like that was okay when I wasn't masturbating. But what got me was I'd go out on the street and I'd see like billboards of like women that were like, you know, you could see everything in their bodies. It was like, you know, it was essentially pornography. Or I'd see women walking down the street with like their bodies totally exposed. And it was like, because I was not masturbating, one thing that I really had to do is protect myself. And, you know, I really was serious about not letting myself get, um, get out of control. I, that sounds bad, but like, I didn't want to get turned on basically. So I, I, I would have to find ways to not look at them because it's like, it's like I was naturally drawn to look at you know, that kind of stuff. I'd want to look at some beautiful woman who's walking by me who's like a fashion model in my neighborhood in Greenwich Village in New York. It's like any, everybody was looking and it's like I was too. And it was like, oh, you know, so what I did to resist, to use your word, would be um, I just would take my glasses off when I was outside. I did that for a few months. I go, and I'm really nearsighted, so I can't see anything. So for me, a beautiful fashion model wearing a, you know, basically a bikini walking down the street in Manhattan for me, looked like the same as a 75-year-old woman walking down the street. I couldn't see any difference because <laughs> I'm so blind. So that was one thing I did that was helpful. Another thing was I would just like, I would turn my vision sort of inward. So when, once I eventually could keep my glasses on, I, make, I, I hope I don't make myself sound crazy, but I would just turn my vision inward and focus on me so I wouldn't look at people on the street. And, and normally I like to watch people. I love looking at everybody who walks by. And so I just disciplined myself not to do that. Another thing was it's like, um, you know, I don't look at porn. I like avoid all porn websites. So it's like, I did that like to an extreme. It's like, I avoided any sort of sexualized websites. I didn't, you know, like I didn't want to, if I'd be watching a movie and suddenly like a sex scene would come on, ah, ah, I'm either going to fast forward it or I'm just going to like look away. I don't want this. Cause I don't, I just didn't want to get aroused because I think it was like, it's sort of a natural process. That kind of stuff to some degree can be arousing and, also, it's like, okay, I'm going to bed at night. That's a natural time that I would, I would often masturbate. It would be like, you know, at that time, I would meditate sometimes before I go to bed. And then, you know, if I would notice sexual thoughts coming to my mind, just, just focus on my breathing and just 
or, or just, you know, just focus on me and think loving thoughts for myself. So, so it's sort of in a way, therapeutically, it would be called like sort of cognitive behavioral techniques that I would practice. And then I would yeah. just be able, be able to go to sleep. So those would be all things that I would do specifically with masturbation. And, and the reason I choose masturbation is because by far that was the most difficult thing that I abstained from of everything. And that's what I said. After two years of not masturbating, I'm like, Daniel, never, ever, ever for yourself do you have to fear an addiction again. Because the fact that you could not masturbate for two years, you could stop anything you want if you really want to. Like I'm not, I, that's, and that's part of why I don't worry now about like, oh, I can have a drink once in a while. I can smoke a cigarette. I don't worry about getting addicted because the fact that I cannot masturbate for two years, I could resist any temptation. That's at least how I feel. And there's, there's a self-esteem for me that comes with that of just knowing that whenever I need it, I've got an incredible amount of self-discipline that I can call to the table. Right. So I don't know how that sounds to you. Oh, I, I, you gave me a ton of examples that I could, I could use for myself when I, when I do feel triggered. Yeah. And then um, I think it's also like knowing yourself and knowing what your specific triggers are and ways that you personally resist. I mean, there's tons of things like I tried right. this. Like sometimes I would put a rubber band around my wrist and oh, I'm thinking about, you know, wanting to have a cigarette, Psh, snap the rubber band a little bit. It's negative oh, reinforcement, but it's like, right. not, not so that it really hurts, but just <laughs> as a reminder, there's a lot, you know, things like that, you know, put, you know, people do all sorts of things and, you know, there's, and, and it's just basically the, your creativity is the limit for how to resist things that you want to resist. But I think okay. also to be fair to study why you're resisting it. Because I also know, I mean, I've heard stories of people that abstain from things that sometimes to me sound fairly healthy. And it's like, hmm, you know, and because some people, I don't know, just as long as it's like, as long as what you're doing is within the context of loving yourself and growing, it sounds like it's all worth experimenting with. All right. Well, thanks a lot, Daniel. Um, have an excellent day. Hey, man. It was good to talk to you. Yeah, you too. Uh, Daniel, I have a question for you. All right. Um, Michael, right? Yeah, Michael. Um, Can you talk closer to the mic? I can't hear you very well. Oh, I'm sorry. Is this better? Um, a little bit. Okay, I'll talk louder. Okay, good. Um, I grew up extremely socially isolated, and when I began the therapeutic process with my therapist, I, I identified a lot of really toxic relationships in my life. And, you know, moving past that point, I realized that, you know, I didn't have many templates for developing healthy friendships and healthy relationships in general. And I knew that's something that I really wanted. I, I knew that if I wanted to do anything positive or, or great in the world, that I was going to need, like, a support team. Right. And certainly my therapist was a large part of that. But I knew I needed, you know, I wanted, I knew I wanted some really close and great friends in my life. And it's been a trial and error process for me in trying to pretty much start from the ground up and discover how to get those kind of relationships in my life. And I'm, I'm very pleased with where I am now and the relationships that I do have. But I was curious if, if you had any advice, thoughts, or anything that you could add to people that are kind of beginning that process themselves. And they want some really deep, close, and important friendships and relationships in their life. And they don't exactly know how about to go getting them. So I'd be curious any thoughts you have on that subject. Whoa. Yeah, that's – that that – golly. How to answer that in a general way because people are so different. I mean – I mean, I, I could be glib and say, I think it all starts with one's relationship to oneself. But I think that's a little glib because I think even that can be very, very hard for some people if they don't have templates of having good relationships. 
because I think ultimately the way we treat ourselves is starts pretty much from how other people treat us. And <clears throat> so like, I think anything that someone does for their own self growth, their self knowledge, their, <clears throat> their, their self healing, their self therapy will translate into ultimately being able to have better relationships with other people. But I think of people who have emailed me over the years, I, I've had a lot of people email me through my website who are diagnosed with various forms of autism, you know, Asperger's and sometimes just even, you know, even more extreme, just straight up autistic. And it's like, they've asked me questions like, I have no friends. I've never had a friend. I don't know how to have a conversation with someone. Uh, can you give me suggestions for how to do that? Or people who are, you know, have been diagnosed with schizophrenia for years and they're like, you know, they're, they might be very afraid of people and terrified that people are out to get them based on their experiences, that sometimes people are out to get them. And, you know, hearing voices that are telling them everyone wants to hurt you and everybody hates you and you're disgusting. And it's like, so I've had a lot of people like that, probably hundreds over the years, reach out to me and say, how, how am I supposed to make friends? So when you ask that question, um, I'm sorry if it sounds like I'm assessing you, but I'm assessing you as someone who probably was much easier than that. I don't know if I'm right, but. Um, well, with me, I being so, so isolated, I, yeah. you're just talking to people was a challenge. I just, you know, starting a conversation was something that was completely foreign to me. Like how to do right. that in a way that's not awkward. Right. And I mean, I know for me that it was, pretty much just accepting that it's like, you know, I'm going to make a ton of mistakes here and I'm going to yes. have a lot of awkward conversations. I'm going to yes. do a lot of things that I'm going to look back and be like, you know, like, ah, yeah, I totally understand why that happened. And right. uh, it didn't go the way I wanted it to go. Yes. And just really embracing the fact that, you know, mistakes are going to happen. Mistakes. Um, but I'm going to learn from each and every single one of them. Right. And, you know, every, every mistake I make or every interaction that doesn't go the way I want it to go is going to be something that's going to make me better and I'm going to grow from it. See, that sounds beautiful to me. And I would also add that what I would suggest to people that, well, two suggestions, just general suggestions are first, try to find people who are the most likely that you can bond with, people that you really like and admire and people you feel safe with, which for some people is very hard to find those people. But you do your best and try to find people who might be helpful and be willing to like, you know, compromise a bit. The other thing is to do what you, you know, you said, so I'm going to make a caveat on what you said, which is what, what, how I translate what you said is to be very gentle with yourself and be very mm. forgiving of yourself and loving of yourself and realizing that this inherently is going to be a pretty clumsy process. And it's going to be quite a, quite a learning curve and a learning process. And to give yourself the liberty to, to screw up a bit and, and to not have it be perfect and you're not going to make best friends immediately and that, you know, stuff might be awkward and it probably will be awkward and to expect that. Right. Is that kind of what you said? Yeah, yeah but, absolutely. And that that's OK. Yeah. You know, that's OK. And the, it's like if you um, it's like if you pick up a violin for the first time, you're not going to play some amazing piece of music on day one when you pick that thing up yep. it's going to be quite the process figuring out how it works and you're going to improve on it over time yep. it took me years to learn how to play the guitar mm. now and you know a lot of things it just took me years to do but i would say the caveat that i was going to give off what you said is that when you do find people who you're beginning to interact with and it's clumsy at first i think it's okay to be open about that 
Oh, yeah. And to talk about that and to say, listen, I'm not that experienced with this and that I'm afraid I'm going to make mistakes. And or maybe even if you're not afraid, just saying, I know I'm going to make mistakes and hopefully I can acknowledge those and we can talk about it and it won't, you know, ruin everything. And so basically, for me, my internal process can be part of the relationship building. So actually, my mistake mm. can actually contribute to making the relationship stronger. And, I, and I'm going to give a, a really clear example of that from my life. I wasn't really romantically involved with anyone until about almost a year and a half ago. And when I started dating this woman, if you call it dating, I don't, it doesn't feel like any dating I've ever done. I was like, I told her, I was like, I've been celibate, you know, since the 90s. And I'm really like, you know, very much new to this. I'm like, I feel like I'm a virgin again. It's like, I don't know what I'm doing here. It's new. It's and, and like exactly how you described it. Like I said, this is awkward and it's clumsy. And I said, but I'm really into it. And I'm curious. And I'm just like, I just want you to know that, you know, at that point I was 39. I'm like, I'm 39. And this is really new for me. And I know it's like 39-year-olds are, quote, supposed to be a certain way. But that's not how I am. I said, I feel like, in a way, I identify more with a 13-year-old. And, mm. and so even though, yes, I'm an adult man and I've, I've got an adult man's values and adult a human being's values and I've, you know, I'm a professional and, you know, and I've got a lot of experience and this and that, there's a part of me that this is very new for. And I'm doing it in a very different way. So it's like you know, how do you feel about that? And she says, well, I kind of feel the same way in some ways. And also it's like, I think pretty much anyone who's going to want to be in a relationship with me is going to be kind of unusual. And it's good. So, and also it's like, it's going to be a pretty new experience for them because I'm not like a regular kind of person to be involved with in that way. And so for her, it was kind of awkward too. And it was clumsy and new. And so, so in a way, we could explore this new relationship together and be open about the clumsiness. And, and I have made a lot of mistakes and, you know, I, I, we were actually apart for eight months cause I was, I was in Alaska for four months working last year. And then I was in other places traveling and she was away in other countries. And so when we got back, you know, I did a lot of internal growth during that time. You know, we communicated some, but we didn't see each other. And when we got back, I was like, it was still clumsy, but I was like, Right away, I noticed I was different. I was like, you know something? I'm not 13 anymore. I said, this year, I'm 23. I was like, I've grown. <laughs> I, I'm like literally 10 years older. And I noticed I was way better at it. And I was like much more comfortable and much less prickly. And I, I, I was much less insecure. And I'm like, this is cool. It's definitely a lot nicer to be in a relationship as a 23-year-old. <laughs> and then, you know, we've, we, she's been traveling some and I've been traveling some. So then we were apart for another couple of months and we came back together. And I'm like, damn it, I'm 27 now. <laughs> and so it's like... The good news for me is it's like in this area of relating to people after a period of what you might call extreme isolation in this part of my life, I got better at it. And, and, and it was like it was clumsy. So I think I did a lot of what you said. And I was very forgiving of myself and very, very public about that. Public. And, and I really just didn't have shame about being a bit of a klutz. And it was mm. like – and actually I could kind of embrace that because it's like learning does not have to be a miserable process. In my child childhood – there were some things that learning was horrible. Like my grandmother trying to teach me piano was a horrible experience because she sucked as a teacher. And so learning it was just became very negative. But there were other things that I learned that were very fun. And so for me, I don't see why, at least hypothetically speaking, the process of 
breaking out of isolation and building bonds with people in a more mature, healthy way couldn't also hypothetically, at least for some people, potentially for all people, be a fun process. If it's all like, you know, you're doing it with people who are also voluntarily into this and know what they're getting into and are also, you know, maybe to some degree going through some degree of this process. The other, the other thing is though, it's like, well, what if, you know, what if someone who's very uncomfortable with friendships wants to be friends with me, let's say, and I'm not in that awkward place. It's very comfortable for me. Well, maybe then there's an imbalance and, and then it might, it might not actually work that well. So maybe it's like easier to also start with relationships with people who are also a bit clumsy at it. So people can go through it together. I, that's just, I'm putting it out hypothetically. I wonder what you think about sure. that. How, how was your experience of your first friendships? Was it with people who were super experienced and super confident and comfortable? Or is it with people who were also a little like awkward and clumsy and it was new for, and so you were all kind of making mistakes together? Well, that's a, that's a fantastic subject, Daniel. Um, I know there was a lot of people that I identified like, you know, this person is someone that I'd like to have in my life. They seem, you know, they're really positive. They share my values and they seem like someone that, you know, I would like to spend more time with. And I was able to identify that. And I also identified that sometimes those people were a lot further along the self-knowledge um, journey than I was. And there was several times where, you know, I'd reach out to certain people and, you know, I, I would make it awkward or it would just be uncomfortable. And I, I would understand that and I would acknowledge that. The cool thing was, though, and this goes back to what you were saying around getting information. Everything that you do, you're getting information. You know, if I if I was awkward around someone and they, you know, were to be hostile towards me or treat me poorly because of that, because of, you know, here's someone that doesn't have any real experience, you know, at over 20 years old, not having any real experience in negotiating these kind of relationships and building these kind of relationships. If someone were to be hostile towards me and not have any empathy for someone in that kind of situation, you know, that's not someone that I really want to be friends with and want to have in my life anyway. Makes sense. So... So yeah, even if those relationships didn't work out exactly as like how I would have idealized wanted them to go, like, hey, you know, we become best friends or something, it was tremendously useful information to me. And, you know, even if it was something where it's like, hey, the person generally communicated their experience to me, that was important information for me to go on, take back to my therapist, examine, journal about, mm. really think about. And it taught me so much about myself and it helped me identify, hey, you know, that these people, maybe I'm not in a place right now where I can be the kind of friend to them that they're looking for right now. Right. That's okay. That's okay. I'm not bad. I'm not flawed. I'm not broken. There's nothing to be ashamed of there. And maybe they aren't either. Sure. Absolutely. Yeah. And it, it was definitely a thing where I learned so much about myself. I learned about other people. I learned about honesty in relationships. And yeah, what you said before about um, like embracing the awkwardness and being like, yeah, I'm not very good at this, or this is kind of awkward, or this is how I'm feeling. Just Really embracing that honesty, I found to be so incredibly helpful, and it it produces some real intimacy in conversations that I yeah. find to be. I mean, like, oh, that's like the gas on my fire is that kind of intimacy where yeah. I can really connect and talk to people about what's happening beyond, you know, like, hey, you know, how's the weather? And oh, the local sports team scored a goal unit or basket last week. Fantastic. <laughs> yeah, I also think it's it's interesting just to observe quote regular people in the mm. world, especially guys, but women too. It's like, I watch guys, these packs of guys hanging out and the absolute inanity of their conversations. It's like, it, it's just like they've mastered the art of small talk, but I think small talk even makes it sound better than it is. It's like just talking about these subjects that are like 
so irrelevant to anything internal. And it's like, I was never very good at that. I never fit in. And, and I always blamed myself like there was something wrong with me. Like I hadn't mastered this art of knowing how to like take myself and shove myself in a shoebox and put it in the closet. It's like, I don't know. So I, I hear you too about like, about it being very special and intimate when you can actually talk about what you're feeling with people. But I don't know. It's like, I guess for me, can I, can I riff in a different direction a little bit here? Oh, absolutely. Go for unless, it. Unless you wanted to finish your thought because I jumped in. No, no, go for it, Daniel. Well, one thing I noticed for me is that in the last few years, I've had a lot of people reach out to me. And, and it's like I don't often have a lot of extra energy to interact with people, especially on the Internet. And that's been a real source of discomfort for me because I'll have people email me, you know, like 2,000 word emails about their life story. And I may be the first person they've ever told stuff to. And they're really like making a wonderful like reach out to be friends with me. And it's like, how do I do that when I've had like nine people in the last week do that? And it's like, and they have such a need and they're often lovely, lovely people. And it's like, if they had emailed me that 10 years earlier, it would have been like most, the most wonderful thing that had happened to me in a month. And it's like 10 years later, it's like, Oh my God, I don't even have time to read this, you know? And it's like, I feel horrible because I get people sometimes who are very isolated, who something I've written or said really resonates with them. And they, they suddenly feel like, Oh my God, here's someone I think I could connect with. And they reach out to me and I'm like, I recognize and I sense all that. And I'm like, I I don't even have the time. It's like, maybe I don't even have the internet connection, you know? And it's like, I've got to answer all these emails and I've got to do my work. And it's like, I try to be polite. And sometimes I think people feel hurt and I'm like, and I, yet I don't want to like not be a public figure. I don't want to be accessible. I don't want to be inaccessible to people. So it's like, I, I sometimes feel very sensitive. Like I don't, like the feeling that I'm rejecting people, but I definitely know people sometimes have felt rejected. It's, and, and it's like, because I also very much relate to what it's like to basically, I'm sorry, I'm going to put it in my own terms. I know what it's like to have no friends because I've had many periods of my life where I had no friends. And I've also, I've, I've known what it's like, like my father and my sister too used to bully me about it. My father used to say, you know what, Daniel, you have no friends. The closest thing you, he said this when I was a teenager, the closest thing you have to a friend is our, is the dog, our dog rascal. And guess what? He doesn't even like, he doesn't even like you that much. And you know what? It was true. Our dog didn't really even like me that much because I would take out my anger on him sometimes. And it's like, my dad would say that to me. And it was like, I just felt horrible about myself. And my sister was, could be at times very, very popular. And she was younger than me. And, you know, she was like, had guys flirting around her all the time. And she had a lot of friends and she was doing stuff. And she was taller than me. And I was this like awkward kid who didn't go into puberty until like I was 16. And it was like, I felt horrible about myself. And I was like, I, I really just didn't know how to connect with people. And it was like, it really had a profound effect on who I am as a person to go through many years of just feeling very alienated and isolated and, and many periods in my twenties and, and, and in my thirties, I've even had those times. And it's like, I think on the flip side, it's made me very, very sensitive to the plight of people who are socially awkward and people who don't fit in. And it's like, I think it's helped me and it's, it's pressured me to naturally gravitate toward people who are feel left out or marginalized or alienated. And it's definitely fueled me as a therapist and, and just as a person in the world. And 
And so, I don't know. I mean, a lot of those skills, it's like I learned them. And I'll be honest, thank God I did because, and I, and I say God very loosely, but I really feel very fortunate that I learned those skills because they didn't come easy to me. And it was very hard and very painful. And, and it's like, it was a lot of trial by fire. It was, it was, it was, mm. it was easier for me to become a skillful guitar player. But mm. the other thing is tomorrow, I'm actually flying to Sweden tomorrow and I'm going to be in Europe for three months. I have my first two weeks of three and a half months planned out. And then I have three months where I don't know where I'm going or what I'm doing exactly. And I guarantee, I know there are going to be times where I'm going to be in countries where I don't speak the language and I have no friends. And it's like, and it's like, those are times where I'm going to be, I know I'm going to be lonely and I know it's going to be hard. And it's like, to be honest, I'm nervous. I'm not really looking forward to it, but I know it's an inevitable part of the way that I travel. And it's like, mm. I'm glad though now, at least that I have the skills to know how to break out of my isolation. I know how to talk to people. One skill that I've gained is even in other languages. It's like, I can read, I can, I learn languages easily. I can, and I listen to people. I care about people. I, you know, I, I really try to understand them. I listen to their body language. I use empathy a lot. These are ways that I try to build bonds with people because people generally gravitate toward nice people. And I've learned to be nice and to be caring and to listen and try to know who they are and, you know, to not be intrusive, to be respectful. All these are things that had I, had I really had these skills as a teenager, I probably would have been a lot happier as a person. But instead, I was going on the templates of a lot of how I was treated by my parents, which was often I was treated disrespectfully. I was teased. I was bullied. I was left alone a lot. I was, I was pressured to be perfect. I was abused in different ways. Intimacy was a dangerous thing. There was a lot of weirdness that went along with intimacy. So I brought all those things into relationships with people. And a lot of that I had to unlearn and I had to like relearn how to get along with people and how to be like a nice, caring, gentle, empathic, respectful, honorable person with a person with integrity, a person who, you know, was the kind of person that other people wanted to be around. And the, and the more that I did that and the more that I, I did develop good friends, really good friends, people who really care about me and, and also develop the skill set in a very conscious way to be able to start from ground zero and to build a fairly close circle of friends very quickly. And I'm grateful for it. And it's like, so when you bring up that question, yeah, it's near and dear to my heart. And it's like, I'm sure it's like, I don't know. Do you have any more thoughts on it? Well, I mean, I just want to say, Daniel, I'm you know sorry to hear about, uh, you know, that your experience in early childhood around relationships and friendships. It's very similar to, to mine. And I think, you know, the way you communicate about it, I, I find that there's a real strength now as having come from that place mm. um, and having moved past it. And, you know, I was in a place where, you know, it's so, so incredibly difficult for me to connect with people. Mm. And having been there and grown from it, I have a far greater view of the world and relationships and people. Mm. And I have a real deep sense of empathy for people that are in that, you know, far too common spot of feeling really awkward or insecure or uncomfortable and yeah. terrified of making mistakes. And how are people going to view me? Or, you know, oh, did I say something funny? Are people going to think I'm stupid? Or, mm. you know, like I, I'm very, I have a very deep um, understanding and I'm very perceptive in regards to other people's feelings around that because I came from that place. And I think because of that, I have a much richer view now 
than someone who you know grew up and maybe they had a better template for making friends. Maybe maybe it was a little more superficial. Yeah. You know, maybe it was talking about you know the local sports team or something like that. But you know, they it was comfortable for them making friends. I have I think I have a real deep understanding of relationships and an empathy for for people that you know people it, it was easy for them or they had that template that they don't have now because they haven't gone through such a process and such a transformation and put in hundreds of hours of work and therapy and, you know, journaling and just really, really breaking it down and figuring it out. I'm with you. Yeah. And I even feel a little, a little like, Ooh, I was a little harsh about people who have the name conversations because sometimes I have them and actually they're kind of fun to relax and just chill out and talk about dumb shit. It's like, sometimes <laughs> I like to do that. The other thing, Oh, I love to do it too. No worries. There. Yeah. Well, here's, yeah. And, but I was thinking about this, like, Okay, I was I was there in Boston the other day, and I, I noticed I, I'm thinking about it a little bit less than I was because for a few days it was all I could think about just after I saw all that awful stuff. But it's like that was horrible. I had a lot of empathy and still have it for the people that I saw that you know were terribly traumatized by that experience. But when I watch the way that the media has been portraying these two bombers and these two brothers who supposedly did this bombing and i watched I, you know i read the news and watch the comments that people around america are saying and watch the way that so many people around you know especially in this country in america are handling that it's like i also have empathy for those two guys it's like jesus christ it's like the alienation they must have been going through and the loneliness and the isolation and the rage that they had i mean like i just think of like what must have happened to those guys I, I feel especially in a way for the older brother to cause them to do that terrible thing, to put nails in a BBs in a pressure cooker and blow people apart. It's like, you know, just the level of isolation and alienation. And I mean, it, it goes exactly along the lines of what you said, that brother, the older brother, I think posted somewhere on the internet that he doesn't understand Americans and he's never had one true friend here. And I thought, I feel for that guy. When I read that, I was like, right. It doesn't take away from the horrible thing that he did. He did a horrible thing. But it's also like I think we also need to as a society and as a humanity to look at what drives people to do that and what's the real cure. The cure is not to like put these people to death and to vilify them as, you know, evil Muslim, this, that, terrorist, whatever they are, you know, all these stupid words. You know, instead it's like, you know, these – People, a guy who could never make friends, who couldn't somehow fit in, whose cultural history and whose traumas and whose family probably just really blocked him from being able to, like, do what we're talking about. He didn't overcome it. He didn't learn those skills. And also coming to a culture where he was, you know, an alienated cultural and religious minority where it's like he didn't. You know, it probably was not easy for him. I mean, I, I actually, as a therapist, have worked with, I mean, I know he was ethnic Chechnyan, but, you know, in a sense, Russian. But I've worked with a lot of, um, in, in the United States, in New York, Russian immigrants who came over here, came here as teenagers and were brought over as refugees by their families. And it's like, a lot of the, the girls seem to do better than the guys, a lot of the guys, and, and not just from Russia, but from other places. It's just like they didn't fit in as well. They didn't learn the language as well. They still had accents 10, 15 years later. And they just, it's like, it was really, really painful. Now, I didn't work with anyone who responded by like blowing people up, but I saw a lot of people who were really angry and really hurt and felt very let down and, and wished actually that even though they were 
you know, persecuted in their own countries of origin, which is why their families left. They're like, I wish I'd never left. It was better over there than in this horrible country called America, where I was just treated as a dirty Russian or, a, you know, an Arab or whatever it was that they were treated as. And here, I was just a dirty Indian, you know, and it's like, you know, I, so I don't know. I, I, I wish I could help people more who felt really alienated because it's very painful. Like, I, again, I feel very fortunate that I've overcome a lot of those humps that at one point I had no idea how to get over. And it was just like I went to bed crying a lot at night and, and I hated myself. And that was a vicious cycle because the more I hated myself, the more it was like I had no idea how to be authentic around people. Because how was I supposed to start a friendship when I would say to people, you know, listen, it's a little awkward for me making friends because I fucking despise myself and I think I'm a fucking loser. So do you want to be my friend? Do, do you know what I mean? I didn't know how to start. Oh, yeah. And so it's right. like when people feel those things, it's like it's like an almost insurmountable barrier. And it's like that's part of why it's like it really requires being able to find the right people. And it's like so when I heard that the younger brother who was a bomber, even though he was an integrated American more or less – he was still like hanging out with Russians a lot and talking in Russian. It's like, yeah, it probably was a place where some deep part of him felt very safe being around people who were more peers. And it's like, I think it's really important for people to find peers at whatever level being a peer is. And that was important for me too. And I got a lot of, I mean, it was like definitely like ramping up. Like I didn't find my best friends in life immediately. I had, friends who I met in certain ways early on, but it was like, I didn't meet my closest friend until I was in my late twenties. And until then I never had someone who I really felt like incredibly deeply bonded with. So basically I felt pretty alone until my late twenties. Right. Yeah. I certainly had a very similar experience in that regard. Um, and what you said around, you know, like if you don't, if you don't love yourself, if, if you're not happy with the person you are, it's going to be, I mean, almost impossible for you to connect with other people because, you know, if you're bringing to the table at the first go, like, hey, I don't even like myself. So yep. the other person's going to be like, hey, well, if you don't like yourself, then why should, you know, like, what is there for me to really pick up on and communicate and connect to you with? You know? Yeah. So, and another thing, that, for I me, mean, oh, just to cut in, another thing that I would do for myself especially as a teenager, is <clears throat> it wasn't my personality that I hated. I played it out of my body. I hated my body. I was too short. Mm. I was too skinny. I hadn't gone into puberty. I, was, I didn't have enough proper body hair. My voice was wrong. My ears stuck out. I actually, when I was 18, I begged my parents to let me get plastic surgery to get my ears pulled in because I hated the way my ears looked. I hated them. It's like I put, I, I was like, I totally like externalized my hatred of myself because in a way my hatred of myself on the inside was, I didn't even know how to deal with it. So it's like, at least I could control my body. I could try to lift weights and I could get in better shape and I could, you know, at least I kept growing. And it's like, I was so short and it was like, I, I, it was by chance that like, I went from being like the shortest kid in my class to growing until I was 21. And now I'm like almost six foot five. It was just like, it was like magic to me that that happened. But, mm. but it was like, I was obsessed with my haircuts and putting mousse in my hair and doing all these things and constantly rinsing my mouth out with mouthwash. And it's just like, it was like, I was this, I was a kid who was tormented inside and I would take it out of myself and lots. And also I was, a, I was mean to other kids. I wasn't the nicest kid because I took it out on other kids who I sensed were weaker than I was. It was like, right. so I, I still have a lot of like, I mean, I, I've worked through a lot of it, but it was like, dude. I, I would not want to go through my teen years again because of what I did to myself, because of what other people did to me and because of what I did to other people. And it's like, Oh, 
Ugh. Yeah. I'm a survivor. No, I, I hear you, Daniel. Yeah, it certainly did some things in the past that I'm not proud of either, and that, mm. that you know was very difficult to look back on and acknowledge and and really focus on. Um, I, you know, when you mentioned <laughs> when you mentioned like you, you would take some facet of your appearance, like you know your ears or yeah. you know, how tall you were, and yeah, I, I know for me, I, I had bad acne when I was younger, oh. and. I, that was the thing. It was like, if I could just fix this, all my problems would be solved. If yeah. this one external visible thing, if I yeah. could fix this, it could be solved. And, you know, if it, if it wasn't the acne, if that problem was solved, there would have been another problem. Yeah, me too. There would have been some other external solution that, you know, I, I had limited control over that if, it, if this was fixed, there, there would always be that next thing. The goalpost mm. would be moved. And that was just, for me, I mean, a distraction from really – sitting down and being like, I am just, I am not happy and I no. need help. Yeah. And, and, <laughs> and, the, and the problem for me is there was no help. There was nobody right. to help me. I had nowhere to go. It's like my parents, to be blunt, they were fucking useless. They were worse than useless. They were making it worse. It's like right. nobody, none of my peers were helpful. My teachers were, were horrible. And it's like my friend's parents, they mostly didn't even like me or I didn't even know them. It was like, literally I was in this void of mature people. And it was like, so I spent a lot of time alone. Right. Like it was the yeah. best, it was the best solution. And I know Daniel, I mean, I was culturally taught that, you know, if you, if you ask for help, you're, you're weak. Me too. You know, if you, if you admit that you need help, you're weak and you shouldn't do that. You know, you need to hide that. Yeah. And I mean, I certainly did. Yeah. I hit that as best I could, even though it was plainly obvious to anyone with even a, a shred of self-knowledge that, you know, Hey, this, this person's in some real crisis. They need some help. But yep. you know, I, I tried to hide that away as best I could and just make it through the days because I didn't want to be perceived as weak. Cause that would be yep. one more thing, one more thing that would uh, lead to me not being able to connect with people or not being able to, you know, live the kind of life that I wanted to live. So. Yeah. And for me, it was, there's one little thing in addition to what you're saying is that sometimes it, my feelings would become so overwhelming that I would crack and I would let out my desperate need for help. And then it was usually, it made it even worse because then people would either come in, be really smarmy and like try to fix my life in a way that wasn't for my sake, but was to make their life feel better. Or they would just put me down and humiliate me. So it's like, it was, mm. it was like my experience with reaching out for help was, was 99% of the time extremely negative and made me feel sh ashamed and worse. So it was like, Basically, what I spent a lot of time doing was shutting down, doing my own projects, and biding my time until I became an adult. Because somehow I was convinced it's going to be better with, on, when I was an adult. It just has to be better than this shit. And I don't know if it was luck, hard work, or a lot of other factors, but it did get better. It really did. And I feel grateful. I'm not a miserable, horrible, depressed person anymore. And it's like I was a lot of those things. Also, the thing is I did what I could. Like I did really well in school. I kept my body in good shape and things like that. I studied a lot because I was like, you know, I don't think doing well in school is going to hurt me. It was like because I, I saw it as a tool to my salvation. I actually hated school, but I saw it as a means to an end because I was like I didn't respect the, the – you know, the school system, I didn't respect college. I thought my teachers were idiots, but I was like, well, you know, at least if I do well there, maybe I can use it as a platform to get more out of life, which eventually it did. But now it's like, I would never want to go back to school unless it was to learn some specific trade. But anyways, I noticed that we have three minutes left. How should we wrap this up? Is there other people to ask anything or do you want to just talk with me or what should we do? 
Well, Daniel, if you'd like to tell people about, you know, the projects you have coming up, you know, what's currently on your your website, your new website, by the way, yeah. um, if you could just tell people what you, what you got going on, um, how they can get in contact with you, and sure. yeah, just a general wrap-up. Well, my new website is wildtruth.net, so wildtruth.net, and oh, my projects, I've been working massively on projects for the last, I don't know how long, year and a half, year, um, I finished my new, newest film is on coming off psych drugs, and it's mostly people who have come off them themselves. It's not a bunch of therapists talking. It's people who have been there, who've come off antipsychotics, antidepressants, mood stabilizers, anti-anxiety drugs, benzos, and it's, it's a combination of – it's partially inspirational. It's also how-to, and it's also philosophical. So it's a combination, and it's a super radical film. There's nothing out there that's like it. It's already starting to get popular in the world of people who are you know, trying to remake and crush the psychiatric system. So that's one. The other one is my first three films, which is all about recovery from psychosis without psychiatric drugs. I got a grant a year and a half ago, or a little over a year ago, sorry, to get them translated into a whole bunch of languages. So right now, two of them are translated into 19 languages, and... And one of them is translated into 17 languages. And that's all on my website. There's trailer, I mean, the, there's YouTube trailers in each, um, for each of the three films that are translated into all those languages. And then I sell the DVDs. So that's basically how I make my living is, is selling these DVDs. And I go to screenings and sell films. And, and so what's coming up for me is uh, I have a new book about that I'll, I'm going to have to finish. I've written it, but I haven't gotten a chance to go back and edit it. It's about uh, break, people who break up with their parents. And it's all about that on a lot of levels. And I haven't looked at it in a year, so I'm curious to go back when I get a chance and finish that up and publish it. Um, made a new website. I have a lot of new essays coming out. A lot of my, I, I write a lot about critiquing the mental health system. And, and I'm going traveling starting tomorrow. I'm going to more or less go off the grid for a few months. My DVDs will still be for sale because I have a friend in New York who mails them out for me. But uh, I'll be going to some conferences in Europe, um, do some film screenings, and then, I don't know, maybe just get a chance to relax and be with myself and just have some good internal times. Maybe I'll learn a new language. I really am not sure. I have no idea what's coming up, and it's exciting. It's a bit stressful. Then I come back to the U.S. in August and go to a bunch more conferences. Uh, in the fall, I'll be in Australia for a month um, doing the conference thing, and um Really don't know. My life is kind of unpredictable at this point. Sometime I want to start the podcast thing on my website, and so this was a great chance for me. And actually, it's like I've learned a lot from Free Domain Radio. I've learned a lot from listening to Stefan and studying him, and really interesting to meet him yesterday. And I'm I'm wondering. I really thought about it a lot during the night. What of his model, of his way of reaching people, can I incorporate? What what of it is relevant to my way of doing things? And because. I think he's done some things that are pretty amazing and I really look up to him and, and I think like, how can I take some of those and, you know, get my message heard better. And so I'm thinking about it. I don't have the answers, but for me, this was a good chance to practice. I've never done a radio show like this. I think I'm a bit clumsy as a radio host, but at the same time, I think it was pretty fun. So I guess that's about it. All I'd say is, well, thanks a lot. Great opportunity. And, you know, best of luck to everyone out there. Thank you so much for being the guest host today. Yeah, thanks for having me on. Bye-bye.